Thanks for listening to the New Life Church Cersei podcast. We're glad that you're joining us today. You're about to hear message audio from one of our weekend services, but before you do, just want to remind you, you can tap the link in the description or text Cersei to 88000 to get connected and stay up to date with what's going on on our campus at all times. You can give online, join a life group, or find more information about joining a serve team as well. You can also request prayer. We love praying for the needs of our church every single week. If you have a prayer request, tap the link in the description, or again, text Cersei to 88000 for more information. All right, well, good morning, good morning. We're going to get into the Word in just a moment, but today we have a, a very special guest here today. And I'm going to use the language that I, I, I would use here, but we are privileged today to have the lead pastor at Downtown Church of Christ with us today. And so he's, he's going to be sharing the word in just a moment. Yep. This is, is a first for us. It may be a first for Kent. I don't know, but we're going to find out in just a minute. When we first started talking about this, I said, now, Kent, listen, we, we have drums there. Okay. It's, uh, and they're scary. Okay, and the guy that plays him, he's scary too. And he said, well, I'm still coming. So he, he made it through worship. And, uh, but I, every, every time I hear about Kent, it's always attached to something good. And we share a lot of mutual friends. And I would say this, our churches are deeply connected. And so there's not a single one of you who do not know someone who attends downtown Church of Christ. So they've been so influential in this city, and so we share a lot of, of biblical community across the, across the streets from each other. And so it's just an honor to have him here. Back in the day when we were at the carpet store, uh, downtown extended their baptistry to us because we didn't have one. And uh, we didn't have the money to buy one, and uh, poor Greg Holloman, he got baptized in a horse trough. And he's like six foot eight. So that was part uh, immersion and part sprinkling. You know, we just kind of combined it, but we, we, we got him baptized. But downtown would let us come and baptize there. And so there's just a lot of honor between our campuses. And so what I want you to do, if you would, I want you to stand on your feet and put your hands together and help me welcome Pastor Kent Job to the place today. So. All right, good morning. Have a seat. Thank you. That's way too much. I appreciate so much the opportunity uh, to be able to stand before you today. Um, as he said, my name is Ken. I've been the lead minister at the downtown church. Uh, May will be two years, uh, and we have thoroughly enjoyed our time back in Searcy. Uh, the slide of my family will show momentarily. They look like this. Um, you don't know them, but I want to quickly introduce you. To the far left is Austin. Uh, those of you that are in the college baseball world, he is a pitcher at Crowder College in Neosho, Missouri. Uh, he'll graduate, Lord willing, in May with his, with his um, associate's degree, and then he'll be a bison in the fall. He'll play, play baseball for the bisons for the next two years. Uh, Briley is my daughter. She's 15. She's a sophomore at the academy, Harding Academy. I'm the chunky guy in the middle. The beautiful woman to my right, your left, or no, you're right. Anyway, that's Kara. We've been married for 27 years. She teaches second grade uh, at the academy. 
Um, she's originally from Pocahontas, Arkansas. Carol Wilson was her maiden name, if you knew us in the mid-90s. Uh, then the two on the end, the one on the far right is my oldest. That is Derek, uh, and he married Gracie Matheny. Those of you who know Glenn and, Gracie, uh, Glenn and Gretchen Matheny, this is their daughter, Gracie. Uh, they've been married December 18th was a year. So that is the Job crew. Uh, they are all, Austin is playing baseball today, and Kara and Derek and Gracie are watching him this afternoon. He has a doubleheader, so my, my family is all north. But it is such an honor to be here. It is an honor to be with you. It's an, I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate your hospitality. Just the opportunity to be able to do this uh, means a lot to me. Uh, in my uh, ministry, I've been able to do a lot of really cool things, and I definitely put this towards the top of that list. So I want to thank you for that been praying about what I wanted to talk about and something that just keeps coming back. As someone who could come in and speak to you and then come out, what could I say that I would want you to chew on, that you would want to think about? Uh, rather than just come in and just blow sunshine, we could do that. We could talk about the good things, but if there was something I could say that you could chew on, that would convict you, that would allow you to be able to continue to lead your life just a little bit differently, if when you walked away you were thinking to yourself, I, there's, something I need to, there's something I need to address, if I can offer that seed today, that's exactly what I want to do. So I'm going to offer up another prayer, and then we're going to jump into our text today. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be standing here. I pray at this time uh, that you pour through me selfishly the gift of preaching, that when this is all said and done, this will be much more about you than it ever was about me, and that in all things may you get the glory and the honor. Father, I'm thankful for this body of believers. I pray that you continue to bless them. Continue to bless them numerically. Continue to bless them in kingdom power. May their influence be great. And may you continue to lead them in the way that you would have them to go. We just ask all of these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. All right, today I'm going to be in Joshua chapter 6 and 7. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over there with me. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time with a story that you may be familiar with and then one that you might not be as familiar with. But the first one is about a battle, and it's the fall of Jericho. And it's this monumental battle, but if we're honest with ourselves, the word battle probably isn't the right word we should use because there's actually very little resistance. The biblical account of the destruction of the walls of Jericho and the triumph over the city does not include the slightest notion of resistance. In fact, if there was ever a case study of the Lord being the hero of the story and of the narrative, it would be in this particular chapter. It begins with God accomplishing what man could not. Because after all, who could ever logically rationalize that trumpets and shouting and marching could crumble fortified city walls? But we know from the New Testament, Jesus says in Matthew 19, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And one thing that comes out as we see this battle with Joshua is two things I want us to remember. Not only was faith a major player in the victory, but also this concept of obedience. I can't help but think of when Judges chapter 7 with Gideon's army fighting with 300 men attacking the Midianites. And remember, all they had was trumpets and pitchers and torches. Again, no weapons, no sharp pointy sticks even, right? Because at the end of the day, the battle was all about God and not man's ingenuity and what Gideon brought to the table and what those 300 were able to do, but rather what God himself was able to do. Even though, God, even though God's requests may have seemed peculiar when compared to tested battle plans, Joshua is someone that trusts God. And Joshua in and of himself is an amazing case study because he follows on the heels of Moses. Who wants to follow Moses? 
It's kind of like following Monty Cox at downtown, right? It's kind of in that same vein. Maybe not in the exact same vein, but it's similar. To be able to come behind someone that has name recognition, someone that has notoriety, someone that has a resume of all the things that they've done as Moses passes and Joshua takes his place. It's no wonder that God says in Joshua chapter one to be strong and be courageous. It's almost a pep rally of sorts where God looks at Joshua and says, the same God, me, the same God that was with Moses will also be with you as well. And now we see in the battle of Jericho where Joshua is having to rely on that. Is he being strong? Is he being courageous? Is he trusting? Does he believe in the same God that was with Moses to be able to lead him through this battle of the walls of Jericho? It's important that we understand that. There were people who had seen firsthand God stop the Jordan River and cross on dry land. These falling of the walls of Jericho, we read about in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. David Jackman says the way in which the victory came was chosen by the Lord so that it would be ingrained in their memory that their first victory was the gift of the gracious, sovereign commander. We always fall into, into a problem whenever we begin to realize what I have done. It's why I pray, and I hope you heard it, that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that if it ever becomes more about me than about him, then we've messed up. It's why John the Baptist preaches in John chapter 3 and verse 30 that Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And that should be our motto. That should be our model as we look at how we should conduct our lives. It's important to see in verse 8 there in Joshua chapter 6 that the people obeyed. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, they followed. The people followed his instructions regarding the battle plan. But Joshua offers up some additional instructions after the walls fall. I want us to see, the, if I could title today, it would be Sin in the Camp, because if there's anything in our lives that keep us from following him, we have to be willing to maliciously address it and get rid of it so that we can be fully used by God and not be guilty of people who try to follow God but still keep our pet sins, our pet relationships, our pet, our, our pet hurts, habits, and hangups. Those things that we truly want to follow God with all of our heart, but I've still got these things that I'm just not quite ready to give over to him. Verse 18, but you keep for yourselves from the devoted things to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. He continues in verse 19, but all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall be brought into the treasury of the Lord. Talk just a second about these devoted things. If you have an NIV, your footnote in your Bible may say something like this. The Hebrew term refers to the irrevocable giving over of things or persons to the Lord, often by totally destroying them. The noun is harem, and its verbal root means to set apart or to vote or to devote with the object of what is set apart, belonging to the Lord for him to determine absolutely its use or destruction. As a point of clarification, as disciples, we realize that everything ultimately belongs to God, but the point of devoted things was to earmark certain things specifically to and for God. Basically, if everything in Jericho belongs to God, then to keep any of the gold, bronze, iron, and valuable garments for oneself would be to partner with the ones who were being destroyed. At the end of the day, the people obey for the most part. 
Jericho's destroyed, the prostitute Rahab and her father's household and all who belong to her are spared and the Lord is glorified. Verse 27, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame went all throughout the land. This one who had been in Moses' shadow has this victory because he has relied on God and not himself. And he's looked to him with obedience and with faith and all is right with the world. But, but, but there is this moment where we have victory, but, there, but there's sin in the camp, but something has happened. Slip over to chapter seven if you're with me. Joshua chapter seven. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Camri, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. Things God had explicitly said, do not take the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Watch this. David Jackman, our problem is that too often we substitute our plans for God's priorities. And we selfishly convince ourselves that our ingenuity can be a replacement for our obedience. Show of hands. Anyone else ever done that? I'll raise mine. I'll start. Okay. Our problem is that too often we substitute our plans for God's priorities. And we foolishly convince ourselves that our ingenuity can be a replacement for our obedience. And it costs us. This is where you might expect some humorous story about not following the directions and therefore you end up with a faulty widget, but it's not funny when it comes to sin. When God has called us to do something, when God has called us to obedience, when God has called us in faith to follow him, and we decide for ourselves it is more important that we follow our will and our way there are going to be consequences. When we elect to neglect the word and will of God, the consequences are much more ominous. Achan, the star of chapter seven, Achan acted undercover and secretly his theft caused the whole nation to experience the fierce anger of the Lord. And what follows in the battle of Ai is what happens when man is left to think for on his own. We see with the falling of Jericho that it was here that Joshua confided in God, that God gave him plans, not the case with Ai. No tactics given by God, no tactics sought by Joshua. We pick up in chapter seven and verse two. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is where beth east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 go up and attack Ai because of this. Do not make the whole people toil up there for they are few. We don't even have to send everybody. It's the Kansas City Chiefs playing a peewee football team from rural Arkansas, right? Not even a reason to send all of them. We got this. The issue is you don't. Verse four, so about 3,000 men went up there from the people and they were fled before the men of Ai. Five, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and it became as water because there was defeat. It was defeat that was not expected. They felt like they had done everything right. They had followed God and most of them had, but there was sin in their camp. And there's not a believer who hasn't been there when our disobedience and our unfaithfulness to God's word has brought about a lack of confidence and consistency in our spiritual lives and our hearts are left melted with fear. When we have something in our lives that keeps us from giving everything to God. Anybody ever watch the show Trading Places? I'm kind of dating myself. Is that even on anymore? 
Anyway. Where you would swap rooms, and they would do some ugly design that you were supposed to fall in love with, and that people's faces would be like, oh, that's great. And they were hoping you would leave so they could go back and redo it the way they liked it before. But in those trading places, they only picked one particular room. And we all have that room in your house, at least we do. There's probably that room that you don't want anybody else to see. When company comes, there are rooms that you expose to everyone. And then there's that back closet or that whatever that place is at your house. We're like, well, let's just throw stuff in there. We'll put on a good, we'll put on a good face and then we'll clean that out later. I feel like sometimes in our approach with God, sometimes we find ourselves in that same spot. I give God everything but this room. I give out everything except for those spaces that I'm just not quite ready to give up yet. To recap, victory has been eclipsed by defeat. 36 innocent people have lost their lives because one man did not obey God's command, and the killing isn't over yet. Joshua responds to this unexpected defeat. Go back to Joshua. What does he do? We see from the text in verse 6, he and the elders tore off their clothes, fell to the earth before the ark that evening, put dust on their heads. 7, they inquire of God, question God and his provision and guidance. They're worried, verse 9, about the perception of others. They're fearful they will be viewed as weak and also worried about the great name of God. And if you're thinking to yourself, I've heard this before, you have. Think about wandering Israelites and the same questions would follow in the same line of thought. This idea of why have you let this happen? We would be better off where we were. Now we are disgraced. Our enemies will build on this to destroy us completely. And then what will happen to your great name and reputation? What we hear in Joshua's words in this defeat when he's trying to understand and he's trying to put together what went wrong, it's a mix of grief and moodiness and perplexity and accusation. And it reflects the human hearts and often our default positions. What began as a flawed assessment of AI based on complacency and trust and human ingenuity has now morphed into a blame game against God based on limited information. But I do wanna point this out. In the middle of this whole story, when Joshua doesn't understand, when he wrestles with God, when he doesn't understand what's going on, the first thing Joshua does is he goes to God. And I think that's important. Rather than gossiping to our friends and neighbors, rather than just going and not talking to God, he actually engages God. He says, I don't understand. Hear David in the Psalms where you get the full range of emotions, where rather than David just going, I'm just gonna keep it to myself. He's willing, he believes, he has a relationship with God that believes that God is big enough that he can be angry, that he can question, that he can doubt and know that God will listen to what he has to say. That's pretty important. What's the response? God's response in verse 10. Get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, they have transgressed my covenant that I have commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things, they have stolen, lied, put them among their own belongings. They partially obeyed, which is not true obedience. Partial obedience is not true obedience. It reminds me of 1 Samuel chapter 15, quick rabbit to chase. When we look at King Saul and the Amalekites, right? Saul is supposed to completely wipe out the Amalekites. He's told by Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3, he says, I am the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen, now to the message from the Lord. Verse two, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Verse three, now go. Attack the Amalekites and totally destroy 
everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death. Men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. And Saul says, okay, except for I'm gonna take the king alive. I've chosen, rather than your will and way, my will and way, as long as they agree, we're good. But when they begin to differ, I'm going to take the king alive, and I'm going to spare the best sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that Saul in his mind deemed good. Because despite what God said, there was temporary obedience where Saul felt like, I've got this. And it cost him his kingship. It cost him his kingship. The stress is to put on holiness as the prerequisite for the enjoyment of the covenant relationship. God cannot be with us when we choose to live in this life of sin. In verses 13 to 15, God lays out a plan for Joshua ridding the camp of sin and reclaiming God's presence. A plan which Joshua, to his credit, carries out because he still follows God. Even in his frustration, he wants understanding. And so when God lays out this plan, Joshua listens. Back to Achan. How does Achan sleep that night? He had to have heard the plan. Either he's paralyzed by the, by the process or he's so stubbornly hardened in his situation and in his rebellion that he's unwilling to make the changes necessary to make it right. I've been there. Maybe you have too. To where we become so paralyzed by the process or overwhelmed by the sin in our lives or so hardened by our rebellion that we don't even see our conscience has been seared and we don't even realize we're in the deep end. Wherever it is, this is where Achan finds himself. And I want you to notice, back from Achan, back to Joshua, the urgency to make things right. In verse 14, God says in the morning, verse 16, Joshua obeys the command of God early in the morning. Joshua's like, we got to take care of this. It's first priority, back to meticulous, detailed obedience. From the story in Joshua chapter 7, you kind of begin to see this funnel. They go from the tribe to the clan to the family down to the man. And it is only after Achan is singled out that he finally says, yeah, that was me. But you have watched as you've gone from tribe to clan, from family to man. And he sits there and he watches it. And it is only after that that we realize, he goes, yeah, that was me, sorry. The point to ponder is, I wish Chosen would do this story because I'd like to see their faces and they're doing a really good job with everything else. But as we look at this, what would be the Chosen version? What would be Joshua's tone as he's engaging Achan? 31 innocent people have died. There's unrest in the camp. There's obviously sin in the camp. You've narrowed it down to Achan. What's the tone? Is it sympathy? Is it a father to a son? Is it an appeal to, clean, to come clean and repent? Is it an appeal to cast himself on the mercy of God? We simply don't get to know. We don't get to know. We have to remember 36 men lost their lives because Achan kept stuff. Achan kept stuff, valuable stuff, but ultimately just stuff. And he wasn't poor, but he was certainly greedy. It's the anatomy of temptation and sin. You see it in verse 21 of chapter 7. You see in his words, I saw, I coveted, I took, and therefore they are hidden. And you think to yourself, have I seen this before? And the answer is yes. It took three whole chapters in the Bible to see this same formula first played out. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and, she, and that it was a delight to the eyes, covet, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took 
of its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband who ate with her, who was with her, and he ate. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Eight. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This anatomy of temptation and sin, it's not new. And if we're honest, we even find ourselves there today. We see things, we covet them, we take them, and then we try to hide. But we have to be, we have to be aware that that doesn't work. That we serve an all-knowing God and an all-seeing God. And that's not meant to be ominous and scary, but it is meant to shake us to reality. That we can't hide from one who sees all things. There is a battle which is joined against the world, the flesh, and the devil every single day. We must be intentional about being on guard by addressing the things in our lives. 1 John chapter 2. John says, do not love the world or the things of in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, this is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, he will abide forever. Jesus himself says, and I love this, the imperatives that come out of this verse. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say, most of you can't serve two masters. Either you'll probably hate the one and love the other, or you might be devoted to the one and despise the other. It's not what mine says. We note the absolutes for Jesus, someone who knows us better than we know ourselves, someone who created us says, you can almost hear Solomon Ecclesiastes. You think you can do this, but you can't. The end of the matter is this. We fear God and we keep his commandments. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you right now, you can't do it. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or mammon, right? So the question is, are we prepared to let God be God at the precise moment in our lives when we find ourselves being torn to do our will instead of God's? Because I don't know about you, but as long as mine and God's will are in the same spot, I'm good. I have no problem being a believer, a follower, disciple, or Christian. I have no problem following God as long as his agenda matches with mine. And most of the time they do. But it is in those moments when God's will transcends mine that I have a decision to make and so do you. In those moments where we do the hard thing of denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him, or will we give in to self? When we think something else can take God's place, can earn our trust or devotion, the consequences will always spell disaster. This story doesn't end on a happy note. I'll do better by the end. But in verses 25 and 26, there's destruction. Achan and his family are blotted out from Israel because God is ruthless about sin. So let's plot it out as we close. There's a form I like. I like it in preaching. I like it in Bible study. I like it in personal study. It's called the four-page sermon format. There we go. I love it. I like this a lot. I stole it from this guy, Paul Scott Wilson. But I didn't steal it because I just gave him credit, so we're good. All right, so here we go. What I like to think of, if I have a contemporary problem, and I do, I go and I look at the text. Was it an ancient problem as well? And heads up, it was. 
And the issue is, if I'm dealing with it, there's someone in the Old, Old or New Testament that dealt with it as well. And when they dealt with it, what was the answer they came up with? And if that answer worked in the Bible times, it probably works now. All right? So let's plug that into Joshua, because I think it's a pretty good model to follow. Contemporary issue with Joshua. How can we be victorious in the midst of seemingly insurmountable circumstances? Joshua shows us that faith in and obedience to God's plan, even when it's unorthodox. Do we trust God even when we don't have weapons? When we just have trumpets and we're marching and singing, are you still cool with that? Or do you need to have the large ammunition, even when it's unorthodox, okay? So, God grants victory and gets the praise. How does that apply to us today? Faith and obedience often leads to victory in our lives today. Why did I say often? Because I've, I've lived life and you have too. Because there are times when we follow him, even in the most unorthodox of situations, where it doesn't always end well. Sometimes it does end well. We think of Moses who says, I will lead the people across the Red Sea, and he does. He goes to Pharaoh with a staff, and he throws it down, and it becomes a snake, and it does. We look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where he says, or they say, even if we don't bow down in the fiery furnace, we will be crispy critters not bowing down to you, and God delivers them. In Daniel 6, Daniel in the lion says, I'm not fearful of these lions. And by faith and obedience, God delivers him. Joshua is delivered in the battle of Jericho. Those healed by Christ were healed by their faith. But that doesn't always end up being the case. There's people on the other side of that as well. John the Baptist still loses his head. Stephen is still stoned to death. The apostles do not end well. Scripture doesn't tell us, but history tells us. Apostles die horrible deaths. And they had faith and they had obedience. Jesus himself, it led him to death on a cross. And martyrs all throughout history. So when I say faith and obedience often lead to victories in our lives today, it will always lead to eternal victories. But it doesn't always magically translate to a formula where you will never suffer persecution this side of eternity. Bible doesn't promise that. And so it's important that we see that. All right, Aiken, same thing. Four-page format with Aiken, contemporary problem, ancient problem, ancient answer, contemporary answer. Here we go. What happens when we partially follow the will of God? Aiken knew. Aiken knew the commands of God and willfully elected to hide a cloak and silver and gold. What happens? As a result, he was discovered in his family and all their possessions are burned and they're stoned. So how does that apply to us today? Your possessions may not be burned and stoned with all your family, but there's still repercussions for disobedience. Our secret sins keep us from fully serving God and enjoying pure fellowship with others. I don't know about you, but if I've got sin in my life, I don't enjoy being around other people. I feel guilty. I know what I should be doing. It affects my relationships, and my guess is it affects yours as well. So let me give you a couple of points to ponder as we prepare to part. That's kind of my thing. A couple of points to ponder as we prepare to part. Here we go. First of all, faith and obedience often lead to victories in our lives today. More often than not, I will say that, that when we have faith in God, when we obey God, when we trust God, even when we face failure and persecution, more often than not, as long as the Lord is on our side, who in the world can be against us? I will always bank on faith and obedience over winging it and doing it my own way, which usually turns out poorly. The second thing, 
Our secret sins keep us from fully serving God and enjoying pure fellowship with others. I don't know you. I recognize a lot of faces, but I don't know most of you. So I don't even know who I'm talking to, but I'm telling you, if there's something in your world that is keeping you from fully following God, have the boldness and the courage to seek help. To pray to God that he would remove it. To seek counsel from others that you don't have to go through this alone. I think it was Leonard Sweet who said, if we all confessed our sins, we would all, lack at the, we would all laugh at the lack of originality. But a lot of us think you're sitting there and you're the only one doing this, and you're wrong. You're wrong. Whatever you're going through, there's a real good chance somebody else in this room is going through it as well. And you don't have to work it in isolation. That's one of the beauties of the church is the community of believers where we don't have to do it on our own. The third thing is, and this is kind of ominous, but it's a good one. We can be certain that our sins will find us out. Numbers 32, 23 says, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. I don't know about you, but if I've got sin in my life that I need to address, that should convict me. And if you're thinking, Kent, that's super, but Numbers is in the Old Testament. Jesus says, well, then I'll speak. In Luke chapter 12, verses two and three, Jesus says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Some of the freest people I know are people who in their lives are train wrecks, but they've been exposed. They've been caught. Their closet door has been flung open and even though they may face earthly consequences, they're some of the happiest people I know because they've quit hiding. And even though they deal with shame, and get, even though they have to deal with all of that, at least they're not hiding anything anymore. And that's a place of freedom that most of us do not know. Most of us still got it all good. How you doing? I'm good. Great. Good. Not good. Are we bold enough with ourselves to see that? All right, you're not at downtown, but I'm going to pretend for just a hot minute you are because this is how I close every sermon. Our vision at downtown, my guess is yours is similar here at New Life. Our vision is to be the Word made flesh. The Word is an acronym to be worshipful disciple makers, obedient disciple makers, relational and reconciling disciple makers in every aspect of our life. And whether that's your specific vision or not, it's a good one. The reality is we all were or are a mess but we have a Messiah, but we have a Messiah who gave us a message and therefore called us to be messengers. Um, we have these symbols, you'll see these, I hope. Um, the symbols, the good, there we go, the good news that we have to share, the message that we share with those around us is that Jesus Christ came to this earth, that he modeled for us what it was like to live with people we like and with those we don't like, that he modeled for us how we should engage a lost and dying world. He modeled for us what it means to live kingdom principles, and it led him to a cross. He led him to a cross where he died for sins he did not commit. For your big sins and your petty little minor jealousies and gossip, he died for all of it. So Jesus came to this earth, he died on the cross, and he rose from the grave, the center of our symbols. He rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven and we fully believe he's coming back. In the meantime, let us lead with obedience and faith and let us have a clear conscience before God and man. Really appreciate you listening to me this morning. Let's go to God in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for the opportunity 
to be able to stand this morning, to be able to speak just a portion of your word. Father, I pray to be with everyone in this audience today. I pray that you will just guide each of us, convict us in the things that are wrong, give us the boldness to address those issues so that we can be fully used by you. Father, forgive us when we fake fine. Help us to be real. Father, continue to bless this body of believers as they walk in community that no one suffers alone. Father, thank you for grace and for mercy and for the forgiveness of our every sin. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.